are warriors, professional soldiers created by the Republic, trained to fight and die if necessary in our war against the Separatists. I want you troopers to remember, we're shoulder to shoulder on those front lines. Brothers! Thanks, brother. And sometimes we may quarrel, but no matter what, we all know what we have to do. We are united. Revenge. At last, I must have revenge. Balance to the force. I've trained him as well as I could, but he's still willful and balance eludes him. Fight goes on, gentlemen. What I worry about is the way this war seems to be drawing out. No end in sight. There's over 150 hours of Star Wars on film. This is the Star Wars Binge, where we select, order, and elevate the best 40 hours of the Star Wars canon. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosophy teacher in Greeley, Colorado, and, well, actually recently moved from Chicago, Illinois, is the Daniel Mothershed, playwright, comedian, and pop culture enthusiast. That's true. This is the sound of my Denver voice. Daniel, we need to talk to the folks. Yes, we do. This is one of those times, dear listener. If you've gotten to this point in time, you've consumed maybe 10 hours of uh, the Star Wars binge. If you have not yet actually listened to the first few episodes, this is meant to be kind of like a book. You should, you should start with chapter one because we're about on chapter five right now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. But we have a beginning and now we are moving into really the first part. Sometimes movies do this. I actually love this in movies where there's kind of a short, there's... Um, James Bond does this in all the movies. It's like, we're just going to give you one little 15-minute action sequence, and then we're going to get into the bulk of, of the movie. Yeah, the, the TV business, or at least the live TV business, that's called the cold open. Oh, sure. Like Saturday Night Live does that. That's the six minutes yeah. ending with Live from New York at Saturday night, and then the credits for the show, and then the rest of the show begins. Cold open's always the best part of uh, the Saturday Night Live, don't you think? It has been. So it's always so it's downhill from here is is really what this is about. No, no, no. The, you know, I was the best like cold open of anything I've seen. Speaking of James Bond and then tangentially. Yeah. The first 10 minutes of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. is yes. The best James Bond opening of I've ever seen with with. Oh, I've watched that four times. If we get to the border, he's not going to follow. What's up? Start really big and get people hooked, and then you can tell the rest of your story. Come on. Well, speaking of cold opens and uh, short intros to film, we can't talk about Up because we're going to do that in future podcasts. <laughs> and it's been a good day. Let's not be sad. <laughs> but do you have a favorite short that in introduces a film? Yeah. Oh, I can't decide now. There, there's two, but they're both Monty Python films. Mm. I love the Crimson Permanent Assurance beginning of The Meaning of Life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which brings us once again to the urgent realization of just how much there is still left to own. Item six on the agenda... The meaning of life. It it has very little to do with the actual movie. It was meant to be an animated thing at the beginning of it, and then Terry Gilliam decided he wanted to make it a feature 
and uh, for for like 15, 10, 15 minutes of film, he spent more money than the actual movie cost and had a had some like bigger sets. <laughs> but it really worked because it, it kind of sets up that this movie is going to be weird and sort of non sequitur ish. And then the feature from the beginning attacks the film in the middle of it and tries to take it back. Yeah. Very Python thing to do. Um, and then the other one for me is is the coconut scene the 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 coconut might migrate with the swallow as it flies south for the winter it's it has so very little to do with that actual film but it's 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 before the movie really gets going and it tells you like this is going to be what this is it's kind of a callback isn't it it once they get to the bridge yes the coconut laden swallow becomes kind of the the way they move forward yeah, the enchanter at the bri- he he. If you get the questions wrong, you get thrown uh, into the gorge of eternal peril. And he says, "What is the airspeed velocity of a, a unladen swallow?" And he says, "Well, African or European swallow?" And and he goes, well, "I don't know that." And then the the enchanter is the one who gets yeah gets thrown off of the bridge. Who do you know? So much about swallows. Well, you have to know these things when you're a king, you know. Fun, uh, fun fact about that, yeah. like a park ranger safety guy was with them when they did that, and he was the one throwing those bodies off of the bridge <laughs> into the gorge, so he said he felt very strange. I'm sure you know this. They like film that movie in like 10 days. Yeah. It, it just unreal accomplishment. Yeah. And almost fell through. Oh, um, yeah. They, they had to, that movie is financed by like, Pink Floyd and Elton John and they, they all the like studios wouldn't put money into it so they went to rock groups who who loved Monty Python because all all rock musicians want to be comedians and all comedians want to be rock musicians so they they gave them the money and uh, I had a project rolling with the Bee Gees there for a while but it it, it fell apart. <laughs> it was a it was a Christmas Eve service right Silent Night Fever. <laughs> Uh, it would have worked. <laughs> well, a lot of the movies that we love, specifically Lucasfilms and fantasy, will do these sorts of cold opens. I mentioned James Bond, but Indiana Jones does this. All three of the Jones films have epic scenes that introduce them. Although I can't remember the fourth one. Did they make a fourth one? I don't remember. It, no, I don't think so. Yeah, they, 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 they should probably make a fourth one. I heard they're making a fifth one. Maybe they're just skipping four. Which is weird. I mean, it's Lucas is involved, so that could just be why the counting is weird. It's the counting thing. There it is. Uh, Two Towers has a great scene uh, that introduces you know that middle chapter in the Tolkien. That's uh, uh, yeah. Gandalf fighting the Balrog. You shall not pass! I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Arnor. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun! My favorite is from the right stuff. Right stuff just routinely, I don't watch it all the time, I watch it probably once a year. Introductory chapter of that is just glorious. It's Jaeger breaking the sound barrier. There was a demon that lived in the air. They said whoever challenged him would die. The demon lived at Mach 1 on the meter, 750 miles an hour. 
where the air could no longer move out of the way. He lived behind a barrier through which they said no man could ever pass. They called it the sound barrier. And they do a lot of night versus the dragon imagery there. It's like you see the plane and there's fire coming out of it. And Jaeger's on a horse and he's looking it down. And it's like, can I tame the dragon? And and just beautifully shot and composed. And it's just standalone because the rest of the movie is all about them trying to fly into space. But here they are, test pilots breaking the sound barrier. Yeah. You know, I've, I've only seen that once and the thing I really, and it's great, but the thing I really remember about it is I, I've got one of the old mad magazine issues where they make fun of the right stuff. And like, that's predominantly what I think of when I think of the movie, the right stuff. I think of the, I think of the mad magazine parody. This is unfortunate for, for you. <laughs> well, arguably all the star Wars films also have something of a cold open. Sometimes they're much more robust and I don't know if they count as a cold open. Sometimes it's, it's a much broader first, you know, action sequence, but new hope obviously has the space battle and Vader taking over Leia's ship. Empire has Hoth, and Return of the Jedi has the Jabba sequence. Mm-hmm. I don't know if those would count as cold opens, but they certainly are introductions. Yeah, or like even a first act. Yeah. There's acts in film and television scripts. That's a better description. In fact, as a segue, what we're introducing today is the first act of The Bench. Uh, we had our intro. Now, Jumping into Act 1. We have actually structured the binge to be six acts, six big chunks. And this specific one we're calling Part 1, Students. And everything that we're going to kind of jump into here for the, for the next six or so hours of the binge, because, again, we're doing 40 hours, is about characters in the Star Wars universe who have taken on that student identity and they're learning. And this is actually real common in fantasy film in story. My upstairs neighbors are watching Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Speaking of which. That's hilarious. Like it was quiet for a minute and I was like, hey, wait a minute, I know that sound. <laughs> and so to just to introduce this, again, because our binge is 40 hours, our intro was 110 minutes with the Siege of Mandalore, but now we're getting into business. Now it's time to start that first act. And we've, again, broken up the binge into six parts, reflecting the original six episodes. And like the film episodes, the first three deal with the fall of the Republic and the conversion of Anakin Skywalker to the dark side. And like the films, the last three cover the rise and fall of the Empire and the redemption of Anakin Skywalker. And that's going to be our binge. And this is, in our minds, what is core to the first 35 years of Star Wars. There's lots of stuff that we could, I'm sure we're going to get a chance to talk about after we do this binge. Yeah. But there's so much good artistic storytelling going on with that. It would be a mistake for us to just go, oh, and now there's a new show. Sometimes you really have literary gold or filmmaking gold that should simply be sat in processed and enjoyed well it's also hard to do like a lot of this stuff has been out for a really long time so you really can do sort of an overview and a deep dive as to what it means whereas some of this new stuff coming out is incredible but we don't really know what it's going to look like and what it's going to mean for the whole universe going forward so you can't really give an overview until something is well over i guess you know what I mean? <laughs> 
One of my favorite podcasts is The Cinephiles uh, with the great Steve Morris and John Rocha. And I'm hoping to have John Rocha on. We've been in conversation and they have a rule. They talk about movies. They talk about great films and they have what they call the 10 year rule. And they never talk about a movie Ooh. until it's more than 10 years old because they want to know whether or not it held up, whether or not it actually stands the test of time. That's smart. I love discussions about the Oscars 10 years later because you never pick the same movie. I mean, it's very seldom the case that you say, you know what the really the best movie from 1994 was? You know, it's like, I, uh, you know, Forrest Gump's a good movie. It's not better than Pulp Fiction. You know, it's not better than Shawshank. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going? I was going. I was. I was weighing all that in my head, and then I was like, "No, actually, I agree with that." You know, pause. Make a deliberate judgment here. I am throwing that out. But ninety-four. We've got to watch three movies together real fast before we keep this episode going. <laughs> Sometimes that's just how film works. Like, what really is worth elevating as? Truly genius, you know. Everybody thought Rollerball was going to be a game changer. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> On the flip side, you have, I mean, this would be like the Van Gogh rule. I mean, some people just aren't appreciated when they're when they are making world-changing art because they're making world-changing art. And that's just not where everybody's at in terms of their palette at the moment. Correct, yeah. Well, the binge is going to cover that 35-year introductory period. But when we're all done, if, if this podcast is successful, I imagine we'll have takes of some interest for, for other material that's being put out. But we're going to start with that first act. And if you have any interest, we're going to put it in the show notes. It's attached to our feed on Twitter. The next 13 episodes that we're going to examine, we have released. And so we would love for you to binge those and, and then uh, show up for our weekly commentary. Uh, we would love to interact with you on these and, and make this a good time. So um, as you notice, we are elevating every word from the episodes that make our cut, and we are looking to extract meaning. And I love that as a true appreciation of the piece in front of us. We're not skimming things. We're, we're taking every beat and honoring it. Some stuff obviously gets way more time than others, but that's our annotation. We are annotating Star Wars. Huzzah. So, hey, Daniel. Yes, Jeff. I got 10 or so questions that are going to move us into this next section. And of all things, I'm really excited for this episode. We've been, we've been doing detail work for the last 10 hours. Yeah. But here, I want to talk about some big themes. And we, we obviously get into big themes, but this is even higher up, like 10,000 feet up. What's this all about kind of stuff and so uh to get into this you have actually watched nearly everything in part one of the binge mm -hmm. we have one arc that we haven't recorded yet but we've done nearly everything um what's your spoiler free take on where we're headed you said big questions i was hoping it was going to be easy ones with like do you like the person you are and do you feel comfortable about where your life is <laughs> Uh, no, yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it, my spoiler-free review of, of where we come, we've come from is a, a traditions that, that are all kind of united together get slowly pulled into something bigger and more mysterious than anybody actually realizes and is able to comprehend and, and slowly 
it starts eating away at the foundation of everything everybody believes. Yeah, you can see the the seeds. Yeah, for implosion. It's a slow burn towards destruction. Yeah. A slow burn towards destruction that is actually right there glaringly obvious in your face. You just are too close to see it. Forest for the trees problem. Yeah, 100%. There's a commentator on Star Wars that who I really like who routinely is talking about how he wants to expand the universe. Expand the universe, expand the universe. You got all these time periods you could hit from Old Republic to stuff that's after the sequel trilogy to, you know, there's, there's all these places that you could do more storytelling. Be patient, guy. That's coming. <laughs> what, what this show does is it does expand the universe for me, but it's not chronological. The expansion is in terms of space, and it's in terms of planets, and it's in terms of characters. The beats and basic structure of the timeline are all there, but there's a, a lot more adding of characters who we begin to really care about yeah. in spaces that we're already familiar with. This, this show feels like a, like a sideways view of the universe. Yeah. This is one of the things I enjoy most about the study of history itself is I know how the Civil War basically unfolds. Mm -hmm. 1860, 1865, I got the timeline in my head. I'm fairly familiar with Lincoln's activities. I kind of have an idea of here's where Grant's at, where Sherman's at, where Lee's at. And I'm, but when you tell me about a Southern soldier from Mississippi and his journey through these states and where he's fighting and the individual struggle he has, that's, that's different. And it's, it's new information, but it's set in a world that I understand. And, and, and I mean, personalizes it. Yes. Right. Like it, like it's in the prequel films, it's like the clone army and that's it. Yeah. Like it's a faceless. Well, I mean, they have a face and we know what it looks like. It looks like the one guy, but it's, it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a masked clone army and it's not really personal Yeah, and you don't care. Whereas this show does such a gorgeous job of, of making these clones into individual people with personalities and joys and fears and, and things that just make the world so much more rich. Reading, especially times of great conflict, those are the kind of stories that really intrigue me. Like, I love hearing individual stories from the civil rights movement, or I love hearing individual stories from, you know, kind of all points in time. You, you, you grow up knowing the basic timeline, say, of American history. I'm really into American history. But then you hear the, these individual moments and how it's interpreted through the lens of very specific people. And what a joy it is here because you're getting new characters who are part of the Jedi tradition. You're getting new, lots of new characters who are part of the Clone Wars. You're getting very sympathetic characters who are Sith students who we'll talk about. And it's all, how do I, how do I see the, the, the greater universe? Just a joy. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like it's, it's done so well. That's something to be expected here. There's going to be lots of new characters. They do not shy on creating new characters in what we're going to be enjoying. Uh, oftentimes, we're, we're hitting episodes where we're wrestling with 10 new characters all of a sudden, and we actually begin to care about them 10 minutes into the episode. Yeah, they do a really good job with that. This also makes it a very unique storytelling enterprise. The, the only thing 
really comparable, and we've said this a handful of times, is Marvel. You know, Marvel has the attack on New York and the snap, and they've built so many stories off of those events. But how does Spider-Man react? How does Daredevil react? How does the stuff that happens, obviously, that we're looking at now post-snap, how does that affect global politics and you know political movements that, that arise because of it and all of the international issues? What brilliant thinking on that like and what ha- like in the case of i uh, for whatever reason i missed it i just didn't end up watching it but i but i finally just like a few days ago watched spider-man far from home uh-huh and and realizing like the whole mysterio thing where it's like yep. from an alternate timeline that came from as the as the ancient one kind of says if you're gonna pluck these time stones or the if you're gonna pluck the the stones out of time that's also gonna create new timelines so like mm-hmm. he comes from that oh it's just it is just perfect well moving into the the topic here I was I was hit by this just in prep that many of the great pieces of fantasy writing and exploration are about students. Uh, Harry Potter is about students. X-Men, for the most part, is about students. We've, we, will, we have or will talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There you go. Stories about these young warriors in training. And that's what we have at the outside of the Clone Wars, yeah? Oh, yeah. Any others come to mind that I'm missing there? Well, we mentioned the Nevers. Uh, that's one. Oh, just, true. Just to, to be to be very current. Yep. Um, kind of starting as a as a safe space, and then kind of becoming this training uh, facility almost. Attached, a part of something much bigger. One of the things that has really hit me about students in training is the space that they our learning gets a name and has an identity and it's not just i live here but it's it's like there's an affection often given to what is it sunnydale high school or an affection given to xavier's academy what is it uh the xavier institute for gifted youth right there it is and of course harry potter uh as Hogwarts. And there's just that affection for here's the space where the warriors are discovering who they are. Let me get this straight, Professor. You're actually giving us permission to do this. That is correct, Longbottom. To blow it up. Boom. Boom. Wicked. But how on earth are we going to do that? Why don't you confer with Mr. Finnegan? As I recall, he has a particular proclivity for pyrotechnics. I can bring it down. That's the spirit. Where you go? You do realize, of course, we can't keep up you-know-who indefinitely. That doesn't mean we can't delay him. And his name is Voldemort. Phileas, you might as well use it. He's going to try to kill you either way. But uh, the hero's journey has to start somewhere. And oftentimes, you are plucked from your scrappy beginnings. What you brought me today is worth... One quarter portion. Often, like with the Nevers, like with Harry Potter, like with most of the X-Men, it's these orphans that are being pulled out. They've been rejected by their family or their family has died. And they're coming into a new space, a new home, a new family, and finding out who they are. Our 
you know, they're finding out who they are, both as human beings, but also as warriors. Like, this is the gifting that you got, kid. Tomorrow, at dawn, three lessons. I will teach you the ways of the Jedi. Well, and I think what's so interesting, what is so interesting about Harry Potter, what is so interesting about uh, the Nevers or, or even the X-Men it's never broadcast like, hey, come do this thing where you're going to learn these skills to be a warrior, soldier, uh, wizard, whatever. It's always like, come learn in our school. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this over the last week. Even the Jedi, it's like, come learn this ancient way. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gets discussed with some of what Ahsoka grows to realize. None of these institutions say, we're training armies. True. They say we're schools. Yep. And then suddenly these people who have, quote, signed up to, to learn and be educated as children are thrust into just unconscionable tra- trauma. Yeah. I, I feel like this is very authentic to some people's experience of going into military violent situations where... Ex- but except if you if you sign up for the military, you know that's part of it. Yeah. And with, with a lot of these school organizations in pop culture and in comics and in film, that part of it is not widely broadcast. So it's almost like you get pulled into this thing whether you want to or not. Right. I'm, I mean it more as... Well, I mean it more on exactly that front. Like, you know, my grandfather was a photo reconnaissance pilot in World War II and like many of his generation and age, when there were international issues, he immediately went and signed up for the military and he's using the skills that he had at the time to do something vastly different than he was, but it's still like employing those issues. My grandfather, of all things, his family were settlers of Texas. They were pioneers Mm -hmm. in Texas and he was one of the first people to drive a car from Texas to California just fun fact oh, about wow. my, my family. That's awesome. Um, it was it was like huge news in the state. You know, little Tom Vaughn from Bertram, Texas, that drove a vehicle <laughs> with his high school buddies over to Los Angeles. You know, it was that kind of thing. But that's awesome. Adventurous guy. My wife and I just discovered some of his letters. Uh, we have a big box of their stuff. And one of the letters, I kid you not, uh, that Kelly, Kelly, who's my wife is a, is a professional historian. She teaches at the University of Northern Colorado, uh, is looking through all these letters. And one of them said, I flew over to France today and got a chance to buzz the Eiffel Tower before I came back. <laughs> it's just, just like you do. He's, he's, he's in these little one-man planes and they had secured France. And so you know what you do when you secure France? You, t- you buzz the Eiffel Tower. Anyway, but I, there's something about, man, isn't this life where do you have the character when everything breaks to actually step into those situations and bring your best self toward resolving problems in a worthwhile way? Or, I mean, this is part of what Falcon and the Winter Soldier is about right now, yeah? It's, oh, or, yeah. you know, when you get the power, when you get the ring of power, what are, are do, is your character good enough to 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 elevate and you are a great good for the world or a toxic yeah, that, presence that power is only going to make you stronger yeah. and enhance what's already there i thought that was a great line and they were totally setting that up if you had the chance to take the serum would you do it hells yeah you wouldn't be worried about how it might change you power just makes a person 
more themselves, right? So if you're garbage, <laughs> just garbage, and a bad, awful Captain America, <laughs> you're gonna just gonna be oh, just worse. Oh. Doesn't matter if you have some medals. Hashtag not my Captain America. <laughs> I tried to get that going on Twitter, and like one person was like, "Go to hell." I was like, "Okay." <laughs> I hate this website. (laughs) Part of the hero's journey, I love this in Star Wars, and I think that it's all over fantasy, is the hero is selected by somebody who sees their potential and brought out of that bad situation. They have bad parents or they're, they're orphans who have to find their way, but somebody sees, I think you have what it takes, kid, and they take them from that location to the school. Yeah. So an obvious picture of that is Hagrid going to grab Potter and taking him to Hogwarts. But you'll know this. I mean, it's just all over the place in literature. If I start mentioning that trope, the orphan, the person who has lost their family, who is suddenly selected and brought into a space where you can do it, kid. Master Qui-Gon, more to say have you? With your permission, my master, I have encountered a virgence in the force. A virgence, you say? Located around a person? A boy. His cells have the highest concentration of midichlorians I have seen in a life form. It is possible he was conceived by the midichlorians. You refer to the prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the force. You believe it's this boy? I don't presume to. But you do. Revealed your opinion is. I request the boy be tested, Master. Oh. Trained as a Jedi, you request for him, hmm? Finding him was the will of the Force. I have no doubt of that. Well, was it the first thing, honestly, when you were saying that, the first thing I thought of was Lord of the Rings. Yep. Yeah, talk about it. You know, it's Gandalf saying, this thing came to you. Now I am going to take you and assemble a group of pe- a group of people, and we, as a fellowship, are going to take you to do this extraordinary thing yeah. that you have been selected for. Well, that's the hero's journey. Yeah? It's the call to adventure, and Gandalf is certainly the one that says to Frodo, here is the monumental task that has suddenly fallen into your lap. Sauron needs only this ring to cover all the lands of a second darkness. He is seeking it. Seeking it all his thought is bent on it. The ring yearns above all else to return to the hand of its master. They are one. The ring and the Dark Lord. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. I do. Yeah. I honestly, the second thing I'm thinking of, and it, it maybe it's a reach, and I don't know why my brain went there, but I honestly even thought of um, the character of D'Artagnan in mm. The Three Musketeers yeah. as sort of this young guy who's on his own, who it's not necessarily a school, but he goes to seek out, because he hasn't got anything else, he goes to seek out this group of people who does extraordinary things, and he is invited. Reluctantly at first, but he is invited into the fold to learn from and sort of meet the greatness that gets thrust upon him. Yeah, that's entirely right. It's you're going to go up to that place of education, that place of schooling. And that was written in the 1800s. So it is again, it's just like, you know, these are 
these are stories that have been around for forever and continue to be remade and retold. And, and there's a reason because they're really engaging good stories yep. for the most part. Going down the list, and these are non-Star Wars, but Jon Snow has that story. He's an orphan, um, and he's taken by Ned Stark into a space where he's going to get a chance to have a new family and get trained up before he goes on the great quest. Mm -hmm. There is something about... I was trying to make this with the MCU. It's certainly the case that uh, with Captain America, with Steve Rogers, this takes place. There's the doctor... Um, Dr. Abraham Erskine. Where are you from? Queens, 73rd Street and Utopia Parkway. Before that, Germany. Erskine takes, you know, this scrawny Steve Rogers and says, I think you have what it takes. Powers him up, sets him in a space where he's going to get trained up and released into action. Um, but this is all over Star Wars. So, starting with the first couple scenes of the whole thing, you know. You must learn the ways of the Force if you're to come with me to Alderaan. Alderaan? I'm not going to Alderaan. I've got to get home. It's late. I'm in for it as it is. I need your help, Luke. She needs your help. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. It's Luke and Harry Potter real similar. Raised by uncle and aunt who seem... I feel like Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru are kind of negligent yeah but well-intentioned you say whereas vernon and petunia dursley are yeah. hateful people who are intentionally neglecting him i think i think maybe this this couple maybe just shouldn't have had kids like they, <laughs> they just maybe don't know how to do it and that's fine whereas the dursleys they have a son granted they're horrible parents to him too because he's a he's a uh greed monster but you know well, actually, I think this is this is really important. Um, Luke has to care about Owen and Baru. He part of his motivation comes in saying, "You have burned my foster parents to death, and now I'm going to blow up your military base." You know, right? And that that's not how Harry Potter's story works. Yeah, interestingly, I mean, it is a little bit. No, nobody nobody kills Vernon and. Petunia Dursley, but there's a really interesting moment when when those awful surrogate parents realize that Voldemort has come back to life, and they realize what that means, and they realize that that could could be dangerous for them and for Harry Potter, and and there's a moment of almost fear and uh, compassion's maybe not the right word, but uh, there 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 is just a moment of fear. Yeah. And and it's the first time you see some some humanity, specifically out of Petunia, who was Lily's sister. Lots of lots of variations on the story, and obviously you have to go there. But play this out for a second: the Luke and Harry Potter side of things. Hagrid comes for Potter. Obi Wan's been waiting for Luke, and they take them to to the space to a new family. Luke's family is slowly constructed, and it's not even intentional. It's like all of a sudden Han and Chewie and Leia become this family out of adversity, where Harry Potter's taken to Hogwarts. But, but yeah, he—I mean, he—he he gets Hermione and Ron relatively quickly too. Like, yep. like there's the larger community of the school, which let's say that's Luke joining up with the rebellion. Yep. But then there's the the family he meets and makes very quickly. We'll we'll say is Han and uh, Princess Leia as well. In the same way that Ron and Hermione. Both of them, Harry Potter and Luke, they both come into that family and then they save it. 
Mm-hmm. Isn't that right? I mean, essentially, what Harry does in that first book, it has significance, doesn't it, for saving Hogwarts? No, that's absolutely right. And preventing preventing the return of Voldemort, because they're going after the... Uh, I know we have, what, like one UK listener? So I'll say the Philosopher's Stone for them. For everybody else, the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> Voldemort has infiltrated the school and is looking for the for that stone because like it's Nicholas Flamel was an alchemist and it's you know everlasting life so yeah, yeah he not only saves the school he saves everybody but similar there yeah I mean uh Luke Luke joins the rebellion and immediately is the principal hero of destroying the 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 weapon that's going to destroy everybody else same same kind of story yeah I love this idea that Somebody sees the talent you have. You are seen. I think this is a huge part of a lot of fiction, but especially individual stories or heroes' journey stories. Somebody looks at you and says, you have what it takes, kid. Because Ahsoka has this story. It was Master Plo Koon who found me and brought me to the temple where I belonged. He's one of my oldest friends. Mm-hmm. Anakin has this story. He's taken by Qui-Gon to the Jedi Temple. Uh, Rey is going to have this story. She's seen by Han Solo. You got a lot to learn. You got a name? Ray. Ray. I've been thinking about bringing on some more crew, Ray. A second mate, someone to help out, someone who can keep up with Chewie and me, appreciates the Falcon. Are you offering me a job? Wouldn't be nice to you. Doesn't pay much. You're offering me a job. I'm thinking about it. And taken to to the resistance and we can keep going you know jen urso is seen and brought to this new rebellion and just over and over and over again this is you know this is how this works and i love the idea it's not just the hero but the person that takes them there i think is real interesting you have thoughts yeah teachers the the i mean we've talked about the wise old man trope with with yoda and and tangentially tagging it to Obi-Wan Kenobi as well, but certainly mm-hmm. uh, Dumbledore is the most wise old man character that you can find. Yeah. Like he's an old, he's like 900 years old and, and dispensing that uh, knowledge and information. I like these stories because it kind of says you can be brave. You can be all of these things. You can have a lot of talent, but the, co- the community, I guess that fosters, where you go out of that is hugely important and whether or not you turn into Darth Vader or Harry Potter is, is yes, what you have in you, but specifically to go back to Harry Potter, right? When he's being sorted in the first house, he hears you don't want to end up in Slytherin. And he, he says over and over and over again, as he's getting sorted, not Slytherin, not Slytherin, not Slytherin, not Slytherin. And the house goes, all right, well then how about Gryffindor? And then, when when Harry talks to Dumbledore later, he he's like, you could have been in any of these houses, but it was the choice you made mm. to then get put in here, and then the people that are going to come alongside you because of those choices are going to affect like like where you go. So I think teachers and community are hugely important in these stories, as to as to how our protagonists, whether our protagonists stay protagonists or turn into antagonists. I've always thought of Obi Wan as the wise old man in the story, and in some ways he is. But he's actually, I think, the deliverer. He's the messenger. He's the one who's taking Luke actually to a different wise old man. And the wise old man that Obi-Wan's delivering him to is Yoda. Is Yoda. So he's the, he's the Hagrid. Yeah. And here's the thing about that trope. That person always dies. 
with the exception of Hagrid. I, I assume Hagrid doesn't die. Am I wrong? Uh, correct. No, you're correct. But Obi-Wan dies. Qui-Gon dies. Dr. Erskine dies. Plo Koon dies. We can just go down the list. The person who has identified how amazing you are. The person who, who rescued you from loneliness in this family situation that was toxic and has and, and came to you and said, I believe you can be something more than this kid. I think the Harry Potter version of that is actually is not the delivered part because that is Hagrid. But in terms of the like providing family and kind of shoring up and everything else, that's the character of Sirius Black. He meets him in the third book and suddenly suddenly he's got somebody who's related to him showing him that he is special and he matters. Um, And then that character dies. Yeah. And it's and it's huge. Right. Now listen to me. I want you to take the others and get out of here. What? No, I'm staying with you. You've done beautifully. Now let me take it from here. The emotional connection that we have with those characters, even when it's real brief, it's always huge. I won't spoil this, but there will be a character that does that for the clones. And they say, and this character says, I know that you have what it takes. And it's one of the best Star Wars characters and deaths, you know, in the Clone Wars. And it just, it just keeps rolling. Uh, Jyn Erso is plucked out of a prison bus by K2SO, who later dies. You know, Han Solo, again, plucks Rey and is killed by his son. Ben! And just over and over and over again. I love that trope. It's just it's just always there and just works. But you got to hand them to the person who's the wise old man. And for Ray, the wise old man isn't Han Solo. Han Solo is the serious black character of anything. Like shows up on a giant metal motorcycle. <laughs> That's exactly it, like, right? I mean, Hagrid shows up on it, but it is serious black. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it. And Ray gets delivered to Luke, and Jen gets delivered to the rebellion, and. You know, Jon Snow is taken by his uncle, who also is going to die. Mm-hmm. And, and Jon Snow is delivered, you know, to the, to the Night's Watch. And there is, he's going to find family, and he's going to become the, you know, the man he's supposed to be. And Plo Koon's going to die, and, uh, and Ahsoka, well, the Ahsoka story is going to be interesting on this, actually. But go ahead. Yeah, we'll just say that. There's no, it doesn't feel like there's a wise old man for Jon Snow. The wise old man is, it's the blind Targaryen who is the Meister. Oh, God, what is that guy's name? You're Aemon Targaryen. Seriously, you want to treat yourself on this one. Here's the thing about Jon Snow. He gets taken, well, it's both by his uncle, who is Ned Stark, but then his, his, the uncle he thinks he has, who is Ned's brother. I guess they're both his uncles, aren't they? Mm-hmm. To the Night's Watch. And Meister Aemon who is a Targaryen, begins who, and is blind, everything he says to Jon Snow is gold. <laughs> you gotta just find the supercut on YouTube of everything Amon says. Did you ever wonder why the men of the Night's Watch take no wives and father no children? No. So they will not love. Love is the death of duty. If the day should ever come when your Lord Father was forced to choose, between honor on the one hand and those he loves on the other, what would he do? He would do whatever was right. Daenerys maintains her grip on Slaver's Bay. Forces rise against her from within and without. She refuses to leave until the freedom of the former slaves is secure. 
She sounds like quite a woman. And she's alone, under siege, no family to guide her or protect her. The last relation, thousands of miles away, useless, dying. Don't say that, Mr. Eamon. It's a Garion, alone in the world. It's a terrible thing. do our duty when there's no cost to it. Honor comes easily. Yet, sooner or later, in every man's life, there comes a day when it is not easy. A day when he must choose. Martin just put everything he was going to do in that guy's mouth. <laughs> but it's Meister Amon and then it's Jor Mormont, who's the, the head of the Night's Watch, who gives John his sword. Yes. Love that, though. So I was talking to a buddy of mine just yesterday who's a PhD in psychology, and I was asking him, he's a huge Harry Potter fan, what is this space, the space they land, the space they're taken to? You know, what is Hogwarts? What is, what is the Night's Watch? What is the Jedi Council, you know, the, or the Jedi... Temple. Temple, thank you. And he had a great answer. He says, it's the place of discovery in sanctuary. For these characters it's initially it's the safe place on one front and on the secondary front it's you get to discover who you are and it's all pre-game it's all something bad is coming for you xavier's school will be attacked <laughs> you know hogwarts will be attacked the jedi temple will be attacked it's but you ground yourself in that family. You ground yourself in that sanctuary, and you you develop even those those roots. Those kids. we've we will talk quite a bit, you and I, about our hometown in future episodes. But there's something about that that's just it's that's written into our stories, man. Where where is the place that yeah. you imagine sanctuary and discovery? Where was that for you, uh, man? Part of the human experience. Yeah, and how it how it almost changes in some ways. Like you can you can either not go back because you've changed too much and you can't go back, like some of the X Men characters, or you can't go back because it's been destroyed. You know what I mean? Like, yep. Wise old man doesn't always die. Like it takes a while for Yoda to die, or it takes a while for Dumbledore to die. It takes yeah, it's like nine hundred years for both of them. <laughs> Xavier doesn't die for Logan until you know that that last movie. Gandalf is very old. When he dies and is reborn, and Bil- or Bilbo even, or, or Gandalf is interesting on this front because Gandalf does identify Frodo, takes him to this new family, the Fellowship, and Gandalf does die in some sense. Ooh, this is worth talking about. Gandalf dies, but then he's resurrected. the The messenger, the deliverer, is actually often resurrected. Obi Wan is resurrected. He is the he delivers oh, Luke yeah. to the rebellion, mm-hmm. but then he comes back. I like this as a trope. Well, even with X-Men, I mean, Charles Xavier has died and either been reborn or his his subconscious been re-implanted into other th- throughout the comics multiple multiple times, like. There's something about that image. In this Okay, so here's huge spoilers in terms of speculation. But there is a present series about a child being discovered by a messenger who loves him, identifies his skills, and then hands him off. And that would be one Grogu and Din Djarin. Mm-hmm. Din Djarin is clearly the one who is taking Grogu from here to there. And so in terms of future Mandalorian properties, 
<laughs> just if the past is prologue. I don't even want to think about that. I unfortunately, Star Wars listener, I'm sure you've already seen this, but there's there's a handful of Star Wars tropes that when you say certain things in Star Wars, it's essentially saying <laughs> I'm going down here soon. And it's all over Din Djarin's last couple words to Grogu before he leaves. I'll see you again. I promise. It's like, you can't say that. Don't you know what universe you're living in? Don't you know? <laughs> Haven't you watched the movie of the movie? It's it's the meta level. Discovering that you're this, the snarky comic relief who is in a horror film, and then you realize, oh, oh no. <laughs> I'm definitely the guy that dies third in this, in this film. You're going to get sacrificed. <laughs> you're Captain Nita. <laughs> no. That's one of my favorite 30 Rock jokes. There's a moment where Liz uh, is talking to her producer and she gets summoned up to the top office and she says, I always hate going up there. It's like seeing Darth Vader without the without his helmet on. It's just so weird and uncomfortable. And then they give you bad news. And as the elevator door is closing, her producer is like, you'll be fine, Captain Nita. And as the door is shutting, she's like, no, no, Captain Nita dies. He dies. I thought you might like to come to Florida with me. I can get you a VIP pass to Universal's Harry Potter world. Okay, I am not some kind of nerdery slut. I like Star Wars. Let me- Okay. Do we have we done one question out of the ten? Is that where is that where we're at? <laughs> do, do you know what podcast you're? <laughs> yeah. No, I do. Let's talk about these students. And we we already teased this that there's actually not one type of school, but there's actually two types of schools for warriors, and we see them both in this part. There's the Jedi school, which is like grounded in the Jedi Temple and in the Council. But we see a different kind of school, and that's boot camp. And boot camp is a very intentional way of training up warriors. And we're going to talk quite a bit about super soldiers and that trope. We're going to talk about people who have, from the day they were born, you're going to be the guy with the gun imagery. But the clones are definitely going through boot camp, yeah? I was going to say it earlier and forgot, but I feel like the clones are the only ones who it's, it's you are a student. And the thing that you're being taught to do is war. Whereas with, like in the case of the X-Men, right? Like all those students are just kind of learning how to control their powers. And then suddenly you graduate to a certain level. And it's like, and here's the danger room. It's yes. like, wait, what? <laughs> like, exactly, whereas, though, right? Whereas the, the clones have that from day one. There's no, <laughs> come learn in our institution. Look at all of the ivy on the walls. And also people are going to try to murder you, by the way. What? Nothing. Just to be fine. Xavier's school for the gifted is a huge bait and switch, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Whereas ostensibly in the Harry Potter world, no one thought Voldemort was coming back. So it wasn't really a let's train soldiers. It sort of became that later. And then you get the order of the Phoenix coming back and then you get them forming Dumbledore's army out of necessity. That is what's going on here. With Star Wars, though, yeah, it's Star Wars, the X-Men, the Nevers. It's We're collecting these people with superpowers who f- have felt judged and ostracized at times, and we're putting them in a special location and, and then elevating them in their uniqueness. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, the, the, the underlying message of that is all about inclusion and acceptance. Yeah. It's ironic because J.K. Rowling has turned out to be... <laughs> You know what? It's been heartbreaking is what it really has been. It's like we were part of a family. Don't you realize we were part of a family? And then it kind of, the band broke up. 
I think it's what's so meaningful about the people that are involved in those properties speaking up when you have Daniel Radcliffe and some of these other actors saying, look, if this meant something to you, it still can and it should. Right. Like, like don't let someone being wrong take away something you care about. Yeah. That's a courageous move on some of those actors' parts. Even if it happens to be the person who made the thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because everybody's a person and we all can be garbage and that we don't, get, we shouldn't get a free pass for that. We should work on ourselves. But yeah, I think like Daniel Radcliffe step, stepping up and saying, "You can still love this." Yeah, is is very meaningful. Yeah, just given you know for the listener, if you don't know this, I was in ministry for fifteen or so years, and and there's something about foundational myths that you create that you commit all of your heart to. They give you such grounding and meaning and insight, and you know identity they, they allow you to pick your picture yourself and sometimes things break and that can just be devastating and the movement through that with good people who are likewise feeling the shock and horror of it all you know that's a super courageous act by Radcliffe in that situation you know that's a he's stepping into a space that somebody needs to speak who is it? Who's it? Who's gonna? Who's gonna speak into that situation? And he's the guy. I mean, I, who else? I don't know that anybody else could have done that. And it's, yeah, no, I agree. But sometimes, you know, your leaders fall. So in my tradition, there's all sorts of ass clowns who've, you know, <laughs> risen to prominence. What name one? <laughs> Sorry, name like ten. <laughs> you got. Uh, we got two thousand years. Well, I thought of you history. were gonna actually start. To, I thought you were gonna start to do it. <laughs> I mean, eventually, <laughs> in my tradition, man, you learn that John Calvin is burning people to death, and you're like, well, I'm not sure. That does, that sure doesn't look like Jesus. <laughs> but, but And so what do you do with that? You know, This feels like the opposite of Jesus, <laughs> actually. Might, might, uh, actually, you might not be on the right side there, pal. Well, shoot. Why don't we do a binge about somebody who is admirable, loyal, seems to have it all together, and uh, turns to the dark side? What do you do with that? <laughs> right. I mean, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why you're connected. We connect to Star Wars. It's like you, like even the there's there's part of us that even when our parents fail, our forebears fail, the people who set everything in motion fail, and we like we still want them to to get redeemed in the end. Or even in these stories where we're talking about educators, where. You have to realize, you know, the the students in Harry Potter and the students and members of the X-Men sometimes realize, oh, our teachers were wrong yeah, or didn't know or, or didn't have the right information or Gandalf was mistaken yeah. or miscalculated. Like, par, you know, part of being an adult or part of, I guess, becoming a person who, who then goes on to become an adult is realizing that, like, the, the, the quote unquote real adults around you are also fallible. Yeah. And how do you how do you wrestle with learning that an educator that you look up to is either wrong or has some undesirable traits in their in their personal life aside from you know what they do that that you respect. When the, and I'm bouncing all over the place with my questions here. This was quite, this will be question number 4 by the way that I'm reading my notes from but but one of the things I love about the Clone Wars <laughs> is that it understands that the Jedi tradition has some flaws and some really tragic 
flaws that are one going to bring it down, but it elevates. Here's what's admirable. Some of the best characters in the Clone Wars are fully devoted. Yoda, Plo Koon, and the rest. And they're praiseworthy people who we're like, yeah, of course they have it all together. And it's still the case that the system had some cracks, significant cracks that got exposed. And part of being a human being is having that experience. Man, I grew up in this church, in this tradition. I grew up loving these Harry Potter books. And then this thing happened, and then what What do you do? Yeah. Man, isn't that Ahsoka's story? Or isn't that Luke Skywalker's story in terms of where they go with some of the sequel material? I mean, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi's story, yeah. too, really. Yep. I don't think if you were to ask him, he would admit that, but I think that's big part of his story, yeah. too. We'll get there eventually, this three years out, but when Obi-Wan says, Then the Emperor has already won. You were our only hope. What is it that Obi-Wan wants to rebuild after all of this has been decimated? I have no idea what he and Yoda would actually do. Is it to rebuild a republic? Is it like, I think that ship sailed. What do you Well, similarly, I don't think they do either. I think it's I think yeah. those guys to me feel like a great example of what happens when when dogma and and sort of weird unquestioned tradition just get banged into people yeah. for generations and generations and generations. And suddenly it's like, what is this thing you believe? We believe in this. Why? Because. Yeah. And we're fighting for the thing. Right. But what happens when you get to the thing, you know, to, to go with a much simpler uh, analogy, what is a dog going to do when it catches a car? Yeah. <laughs> Was it going to drive it around? You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I've ever caught it. <laughs> do I really look like a guy with a plan? Right. Right. Exactly. Like, you know, like, what, what are you going to do? What do you want? What is it? What is the thing that you're hoping for? Yep. And that's a valuable thing to discuss. That's, again, kind of a deconstruction of Western civilization because the medieval period is the Jedi Order with the knights in, in tradition. And then you have wicked people who co-opt it, and all of a sudden you realize you're in a world war. And what do you do in these situations? And sides are getting taken, and... And all of a sudden, new technologies are being unleashed. And I mean, so much of what this piece of art is, is talking about stuff that happened in the 20th century, which was the, you know, more people were killed by other governments in the 20th century than all centuries combined. It's, it's, it's just a devastating period of time. Absolutely, yeah. And this was one of the, this is one of the things with Tolkien, Lewis, with all these World War One vets who invent fantasy, is they came back from World War One and they didn't have language for talking about evil, and so they had to create new new realities. Ooh. They had to use images of dragons, you know, in in order to elevate what they had saw because evil had become mechanized. Evil had become you know, death dealt at a distance, which had never happened before. And it, we were no... Well, and, there's, and there's great moments of that in Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. You see this industrial evil yes. cutting into the ground and, and springing forth these... Like, yeah, it's... it's. As I'm listening to what you're saying, thinking, it's like so funny to me that those guys didn't have the language to describe horrible things. And yet they... they, they so they invented it. And, and in doing so, invented the way that we in the 21st century kind of describe evil yep. like i mean how often when something horrible happens does that gandalf quote about you know lightness driving out darkness 
yep. go around or, or even, I mean, more recently there's some Dumbledore quotes that people like to put around too, but it's like those people created the language that we're still using yeah. to talk about evil. Yeah. This is why, by the way, if you're a Disney executive, do pay attention for a second. This is why when people are criticizing Disney for being too political, they don't get the last 150 years of Western culture. <laughs> this is this is how the artists are warning us about what's to come. Science fiction is very helpful in terms of saying this is this is where cloning can go badly. This is this is where you know seeking superpowered individuals can go quite badly, and 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 elevating those in terms of fiction and saying we need to find health and spheres of you know in my tradition it's shalom what does shalom look like for humanity and not just higher faster bigger more impressive technological domination and sometimes that just needs to get called out don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed the ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the force well and also everything is political yeah, social politics. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, my 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 mother was also a history teacher for thirty two years, uh, thirty two, thirty five. I don't know. I should know this. She's not going to listen. It doesn't matter. <laughs> she's she's retired now, and she's earned every minute of that. But um, one of the things she would always start her classes, her her social studies and and what and history classes with her students by saying is, "How many of you guys like politics, and how many of you guys like history?" and and teaching younger kids, you know, all of them are like, ugh. And then, then the thing she would always say is like, okay, how many of you like, and she would just start listing things, yeah. you know, dance, coffee, whatever it was. And everybody, she's like, great, there is politics and there is history connected to every single bit of that. So it's, it's, you know, it's like when people say like, well, that's chemicals and it's bad for you. It's like, everything is chemicals. Yeah. Everything. The same with history and politics, and you know, I'm maybe a little salty about that because I spent four years uh, as a as a comedy and theater maker, uh, being told to shut the hell up a lot because people don't want to hear things that are political. And it's like everything is political and everything is history. So entirely right. I mean, here's my philosopher side. I, I promise I'm not going to do this very often, but if you read Michel Foucault, the he's in, entirely right by saying all language is created in order to have power over your spheres. And sometimes power can be used for great things. You create airplanes that get you from here to there. That's power. That's technology. That's your ability through a technique to be able to transport a human being very quickly from here to there. But airplanes can also do great, devastating things. They can be flown into buildings that kill thousands of people. Everything that we create with language is a technology. It's a, it's a technique for us having more control over our spaces and we're able to take huge concepts boil them down to small packages and be able to move ourselves and the people around us into different spheres and language can be used for great good poetry is great good shakespeare is great good the, your ability to tell your loved ones you matter so much to me and i love you great good but as we all know language can also be created for for horrid reasons you know the the sort of language that we use can 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 marginalize and isolate whole people groups because of how the language itself is constructed a whole gender can get marginalized by how the language the roots of the language are constructed yeah and so, and it's all about power it's all about power it's all about power because that's what technology is and that's what language is 
Go ahead. Sorry. In that. No, I'm just I'm I'm just, I'm emphatically listening to you. That's <laughs> that's what's happening right now because I'm enjoying what you're saying. But but yeah, I I agree. Well, let's talk about lightsabers. Great. <laughs> Speaking of technology that you can do awful things with. Every time, like the last couple of months, have you seen the things that are like, like the nerdist always posted it where it's like, so, real lightsaber created it. I'm always like, that's a bad idea. That is a bad idea. I've seen those Star Wars movies. Occasionally people have amputated limbs. Oh my God. This little one's not worth the effort. Come, let me get you some. It's bad. It's it's so. Oh, it's not going to end. Well, I wanted to. I set this this whole thing up. We were talking about students, but there's four sets of students that I really want to highlight. The uh, it's the clones, Ventress, Ahsoka, and Anakin. Really, if you were to look at our 13 episodes, these are the students. Some of them are are part of the Jedi Order. Some of them are part of the military. And obviously, because we know how this all ends, there are mixed motives for why they're created and brought into military service, yeah? Oh, absolutely. And then Ventress is a young Sith. And just a character that, uh, this character is so interesting to me, and I cannot wait to learn more about her. Yep. Well, let's talk about the clones. They are students. They're young. We, we will say this a handful of times, but most of the clones that we see are between 10 and 13 years old, but they have advanced, they have accelerated age uh, to give them grown-up bodies. But they young, they young folk. This is true. <laughs> is it, well, hold on. Is, okay, I was thinking this the other day. Is that true? Because if everything else is meant to grow and develop at an accelerated rate, mm-hmm. would that not then mean mentally and everything else that they're adults? Or is it one of those things that like... Your, yeah. your your mind grows in maturity only from experiences, and that's what makes you uh, an adult person. Like, I, like, I've been wondering that. I think that's a good way to put it, because we will know 40-year-olds who are not mature at all in our own lives, <laughs> and we'll know 12-year-olds who are very mature. And so, yeah. I mean, when you see Rex, Rex is a very mature character, but he's still very young. I think you're right. I think the, it's the brain capacity. They certainly have those characters functioning at very high levels uh, morally intellectually they're f- they're flying technology that i imagine is pretty complicated <laughs> you know um yeah so uh, yeah i just i had that thought the other day and and i was like oh i have a perfect place to ha- ask that question now <laughs> but but there is a we're gonna hit an episode uh with tj again here in the future called the deserter Mm-hmm. And which is about Rex and some existential issues, like what is the meaning of life and why are you doing this? And those are not questions that he has spent a ton of time on. It's, you know, how do I get my blasters in the right place at the right time to execute the orders that I have and get my mission and my men in the correct place? So, so in a sense, that is being very young. Your world is, you know, this yeah. big. And you only, and then then you meet somebody who blows it open. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, there's stuff outside of that. Rex is that twelve year old prodigy who can play down Mozart on a piano better than anyone in the world. But they can't, you know, what else can they do beyond that? Perhaps, right. or I mean, uh, maybe not Rex, but a lot of the clones. I think that's they're really specialized. Yeah. Any other thoughts on the clones as students? Um, not that we haven't already committed to audio, honestly, yeah. like as, as I'm sitting here thinking, it's like, well, I think we've said a lot of this before and a lot of it might end up being spoilery. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to talk extensively about, there's a handful of episodes that we're going to tackle that are going to talk about the clones 
as students and their growing process and how they're maturing mm-hmm. and what's their character arc look like both as individuals and as, you know, a whole collective. Because it's a very interesting thing about the clone army is they are both individuals and they are very much a family of brothers. Not like the Borg, though. It's not <laughs> It's not scary. True. And one sister recently. Still not like the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> Ventress, as a student. Have you seen this arc? We may, I may not be able to talk about this yet, but... I was going to say, I, I've only seen her a couple of times, and she's been just, a, just sort of a... I feel like she's been used very much as a tool. Yeah. Like, go in and do this. But there hasn't been any... Yeah. I haven't seen that, which is why I'm excited to see more of it. Actually, that's a great way to describe a lot of Sith students is you are a tool to be moved from here to there to to execute the destruction I need. I mean, that's what Maul's purpose in life is up until he has a awakening. That's what Vader's purpose essentially is uh, once he is enslaved. And that's for sure where Ventress is at when we first meet her. Oh, absolutely. The other two are going to be Anakin and Ahsoka. Now, Interesting here because Anakin is Obi-Wan's Padawan and Ahsoka is Anakin's Padawan. So there's that student of a student relationship. But anything we're saying about these two students and how they are in the world? We talked a moment ago about 12-year-olds that somehow sometimes seem like they just have a leg up or understand so many things in life. Psychologically, that's usually because something horrible has happened to them. Yeah. And that feels like Ahsoka to me. It, yep. It's this young person who is very much already at a at a place that most people her age aren't and is very wise and is very kind and is very good. And I haven't seen tons of stuff with her just because I'm watching the binge with, with our audience. But yeah. I'm curious, to like, what is she learning from Anakin? Because she's none of the things that he is. Like, he's had all this time and all this learning with Obi, and he's just this hot-headed, impetuous, smart-ass who isn't patient and doesn't know how to wait and, and all these things that she's not. And I'm just like, wait, what? <laughs> like, My favorite example of who this pairing is is Batman and Robin, especially if you make Batman a little younger and you know, even more psychological issues than than Bruce Wayne already has. Which feels like saying something. Yeah, right. But I think that's that's a lot of what's going on with Anakin. Anakin is a person who's gonna wrestle with his enslaved past, with the death of his mother, with having to leave his childhood home when he's very young. And just like Batman is very much motivated to produce justice order and to do so through violence. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, say what you like about Batman. He's not a pacifist. He's got a swift kick to the face with a boot is, is generally the solution. Batman is horrifically violent. We're getting a old Frank Miller graphic novel as a as a, a relatively young kid, uh, yeah. and and my father being like, "No, right, right." <laughs> that I think is a worthy way to get into the heart and mind of Anakin, especially if it's the case that, like you and I, we have a difficult time relating to Anakin and cheering for him and thinking that this is a worthy person <laughs> to really invest our emotions in. Correct, yeah. Is that this is more like a Bruce Wayne character. This is an orphan, and Robin is an orphan. Ahsoka is essentially an orphan. She gets taken from her planet when she's three by Plo Koon. 
all of them, these orphans, they are warriors. They're trained up to be warriors. They're motivated by vengeance. Uh, there's a detective side to Anakin that we're going to see throughout the Clone Wars that's real interesting, but that's certainly who Batman is. Mm-hmm. And it's the big thing, I think, for these two, and you see it all over Bruce Wayne, is that he weaponizes fear. In fact, his primary tactic is weaponizing fear of his enemies. When he can't get somebody to feel fearful in his presence, that person's an adversary. Mm -hmm. Batman's routinely, he is trying to establish justice in his city because of his own sense of deep loss. That's entirely who Darth Vader is. Is that, do you think too, that's just in Batman, in the same way we've talked about Darth Vader wanting like stability and something to belong to? Is, is that also what Bruce Wayne is doing as Batman? Like if, if justice enough, enough yeah. justice is created, then there's the like stability and security of being in a world where this isn't going to happen to somebody else and therefore. Yeah he's saved too is that i certainly think that's what anakin's motive is prior to conversion when you read the batman kind of stories when he's not in justice league i mean i think that's where the energy is coming from for that character for the most part i mean i suppose it's the case that over time they have he has kind of more of a family it's not just alfred but it's all the robins you know, he's got his own son, Damien, and he's got, yeah. you know, Dick Grayson and, and all the rest. Um, and so there's kind of a family there. It feels like he gets more mentally healthy there. I think that Anakin is entirely focused on nobody's going to suffer the way I suffered. Yeah. And so I need to bring order to the galaxy. And if the Jedi is not going to do it, I bet you there's other people who will have a, a heavy hand, <laughs> you know, in... Well, and if you get, that's, I mean, the thing we're talking about, we keep talking about teachers and students. If you get the wrong teacher. Yeah. Palpatine. Yeah. Saying, hey, let me show you this. And that's where the temptation is, for sure. Certainly in in Sith, it's the fear of loss for his wife. Mm -hmm. The One of the things that the Clone Wars does really well in some of the episodes that we're going to cover here soon is to elevate Anakin's enslaved past and make that more of a psychological issue. And I think that's really important. Agreed. Yeah. Bang. Two other questions I want to ask. First is just about the Clone Wars in general. We haven't talked about just the big scope of the Clone Wars. In order to talk about Star Wars, we need to talk about the wars and the stars, apparently. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Because, and that, <laughs> that all just, y'all just made this make sense for me. Bing. Just all came together. Two primary wars for us in the binge. One's the Clone Wars and one's the Civil War that is announced at the beginning of New Hope. Mm-hmm. Jumping in, if, if you were to describe what is the Clone Wars about, you know, what, what hits you? Well, funnily enough, I think the Clone Wars is actually more of a civil war than the civil war they talk about. <laughs> it in, does feel in like Hope. more of a civil war. You know what I mean? Like, in, in the sense of it feels like the civil war. Correct. Uh, where where it's it's a, a group of people a, a federation of of planets and and solar systems deciding to secede from the galactic republic. What's so bad about wanting to secede? Wanting to you know form a confederacy? Well, as Yoda once said, "Divided against itself, a house stand it will not." <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
it just doesn't roll off the tongue quite as cleanly as the yeah, Lincoln. When, when, when Ken Burns made the Clone Wars documentary, he cleaned that language up a little bit, but yeah. So funny. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's this war. It's the war between the Separatists and the Republic. There's It feels like a lot of business interest in some of the movies who are just saying, we're not profiting enough, so we're, we're out of here. <laughs> It's all tax law. That's it. That's it. That's, you know what is going to hook the kids, George? Mm-hmm. What creates the tension, it's not just that the separatists want to leave, but that they are targeting neutral planets and essentially forcing them often to join the Confederacy for leverage. And that's really where the tension in a lot of these episodes come from, yeah. Right. And it's controlling trade routes, too, right? Yeah. It's all about leverage and power. You're, you're, t- you're taking over the resources of the galaxy in order to, to elevate your, what, your institution, your, your system of government. Yeah, if you control how people get the crap they need. That's, that's it. <laughs> like, you're in charge. Yeah. One person playing chess against themselves, knowing that ultimately they're going to control everything at the end, yeah, yeah. Is, is is also really what the Clone Wars is. But no, and that and that's peek behind the curtain. What's actually taking place here is very powerful interests, and in this case, it's just a single person is able to play both sides off against each other, create the chaos. And as we know from the Game of Thrones, chaos is a ladder. And like seemingly just, we talked about Batman, we talked about the Joker, like, just like, yeah, like really just for the sake of chaos, because it's like, clearly you're powerful enough. You installed this fail safe button that you can flip to win. Yeah. And this was what, a three and a half year war? You just wanted this. Yeah. Just because. Some people just want to watch the world burn and some people just want to have a dark throne that they sit on and just know. Yeah, that they're making horrible crap happen. Yeah, It's a strange motive. The emperor's motive is always kind of mixed in my head. I mean, it's obviously a despicable motive, but what's actually taking place there? Like, what what are you trying to achieve here aside from... I mean, he seems like he has a miserable existence. <laughs> <laughs> what? <I'm... laughs> would, would somebody who's that evil be j- terribly unhappy? <laughs> Hanging out a... He's from Naboo. I mean, that looked like a, a pretty good planet. Why not just hang out there and have some, some Mai Tais, my man? Right, yeah. Uh, it is just interesting because you think, like, what your goal is just what ultimate power? Yeah. Where's the bottom line? Or where, where's the, you yeah. know, like we talked about with the Jedi, when you achieve this balance, what do you get? What does that look like? And, and it feels like the same thing with wanting to achieve unlimited power. It's like, well, what the hell does that look like? And when do you know you have it? Yeah. They're, there's, there needs to be work there. That's one of those villains. It's not mustache twirling, but it's it's like the desiring power for power's sake is just, it's not as interesting. I find Palpatine a really interesting villain in terms of how much knowledge he has and what his tactics are. But motive-wise, that needs some work. Yeah, I, I would agree. Because it's not, you know, we've talked about in, in episodes, we've talked about other villains where it's like, Maleficent is a great yeah. villain and her motive. I mean, it's, it's kind of a stupid motive. It's like, you didn't invite me to this party. I think TJ says mm-hmm. that in, in one of the episodes he joins us on, but um, it, it, that's still a petty as it might be. That is a motive. Yeah. 
You rejected me. Yeah. Look out. I mean, if you look at uh, villains, I mean, contemporary villains like Killmonger, you know exactly why that guy is just unleashing. Mm-hmm. He's trying to take over Wakanda so, because he has been hurt. I found my daddy with panther claws in his chest. You ain't the son of a king. You are a son of a murderer. And psychologically, that's brilliant. There it is. Whereas just a just a asshole old man who wants to be in charge of everything is like, well, that's, that's real life. Come on. <laughs> Come up with something better than that. Some mean old white guy. Well, the... The opening crawl of Attack of the Clones, of all things, actually demonst- uh, pictures real cleanly how the war is is going. It says, there's unrest in the Galactic Senate. Several thousand solar systems have declared their intention to leave the Republic. This separatist movement, under the leadership of the mysterious Count Dooku, has made it difficult for the limited number of Jedi Knights to maintain peace and order in the galaxy. That's worthwhile. The, the galaxy's huge. You have a small peacekeeping force which are the jedis you know how is this how are we gonna make sure that the this thousand year old republic stays together that's apparently a great good we don't want to have you know division in the galaxy that could lead to suffering and so the jedi are out there fighting for that and obviously by this point in time there's a clone army that has come in beside them to to help that is correct thing the last line is a rhyme peace and order in the galaxy because when vader comes to luke he's real interested in bringing order to the galaxy and order in the galaxy just becomes it's apparently the target of both the sith and the jedi but they're they're trying to get there in different ways with different means yeah Uh, but just also again that's so vague what does that mean um (laughs) well that's what i got actually we're going to jump into these characters who are students who are exp- we're expanding this universe. We're finding depth in the major players in these last days of the Republic. As we talked about in, in the Siege of Mandalore, we're going towards a very dark spot uh, by the middle of the binge. And it's, you know, personified in a man whose wife has died. He's lost his kids. His limbs have been cut off and he's been burnt and finds himself a slave like that's a that's that's a hard place to land but the story getting there is really important one to 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 tell oh absolutely and it's got some great music (laughs) uh well you got anything else i do not well hey friends it would mean the world to us if you just take two seconds do this right now for us uh give us some stars on itunes it would mean the world to us uh or share this on your social media Actually, I've heard I heard this from a buddy of mine the other day. The best thing that somebody listening to a podcast could do for podcasts that they really like is just to share it with one person. If everybody here does that, it actually is huge for us in terms of our ability to keep making these. So do it right now. We'll wait. Uh, the music here is by John Williams, Samuel Kim, Ludwig Gordonson, and the great Kevin Kiner. All Star Wars material has been created by the fantastic artists at Lucasfilm, and you can find the links to all of our stuff at StarWarsBinge.com. And that's what I got. You got anything else, Mother Shed? Uh, no, sir, I do not. It's Daniel Mother Shed. What you brought me today is worth one quarter portion. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently he knows a lot about Harry Potter. And I'm Jeff Cook, and... I am not some kind of nerdery slut. 
I like Star Wars. <laughs> Perfect. You want to know why two middle-aged white guys start a podcast in the first place? It's to talk about things they know nothing about in the political system. Because this is the way. <laughs> this is apparently the way. Also, I'm 32. I don't care. I'll start my own group. Rejection from society is what created the X-Men. That was good. loose. Um, 